Lumos. Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Harry Podcast, the show where we analyze and discuss each chapter of the Harry Potter series from a literary perspective. I'm David. And I'm Madeline, and today's episode is called Harry Podcast and Gryffindor vs. Ravenclaw. Today we will be discussing the ongoing tension between Hermione and Ron, what Crookshanks was really doing all this time, and the new lack of safety at Hogwarts. So when the chapter opens, uh, it's right in the aftermath of the end of the last chapter where it looks like Scabbers has been eaten by Crookshanks Mm -hmm. and Ron and Hermione's relationship is very frayed. They're basically fighting and not really speaking to each other. And when they are around each other, they're just taking snipes. Yes. Harry lets Ron ride his firebolt um, because he has also just gotten that back. And so he tries to cheer him up. Meanwhile, the Gryffindor Quidditch team is preparing for their match against Ravenclaw. Um, The Firebolt is amazing, and the team basically feels like they can do no wrong as long as Harry is riding it. As they're walking back from practice, Harry and Ron see Crookshanks out on the grounds, um, and Ron throws a rock at him in anger. Prior to noticing it's Crookshanks, Harry thinks he might have seen the Grim. Then the match actually happens. Um, Lee Jordan spends most of the time calling uh, the match, talking about the Firebolt, uh, and the team overall does extremely well. Just as Harry is diving to catch a snitch, he sees Dementors come out onto the field. Harry conjures a Patronus successfully and then catches the snitch to win the game. Harry sees that, in fact, Malfoy, Crab, and Goyle, and Flint... Uh, were dressed up pretending to be Dementors, which is why he wasn't affected and why conjuring the Patronus was so much easier. At the party celebrating Gryffindor's win in the common room, Hermione is just clearly very distressed about her conflict with Ron and about everything. She's not doing well. Late that night, Ron screams and wakes everybody up, um, yelling that Sirius Black was standing over him with a knife. Um, Percy thinks that it was just a dream, But when McGonagall comes to investigate what's going on, um, Ron says to ask Sir Cadagan, who confirms that he did in fact let a man in who had the whole week's worth of passwords written down on a piece of paper. Let me start out and say that it's insane that Harry is allowed to use the firebolt when nobody else in the whole Quidditch program has a firebolt. Also, just in general, that they don't have regulation brooms, that everybody has a broom based on what they personally can afford. Um, Yeah. That's crazy. It's really unfair. Especially because we see in the practice and then later in the game that it totally affects the game. Like, it's like basically steroids in a way. Completely. Completely. There's no other, there's no like professional sports where you're like, your ability to play the game is gated by the, the like expensive level of equipment that you can buy. Right. Well, especially, yeah, not an individual person. Like, a team may have better equipment, but in a professional environment, when you're competing in a league, um, everyone needs to have the same regulations. Yeah, like, maybe you have slightly better shoes than somebody else for jumping or something. Right. But, like, there's it doesn't affect the game that much. Like, the broom is the whole game, basically. Your ability to fly on the broom is the whole game. So when Harry has the best broom by a mile... Like, of course he's going to be the best player on the field. Yeah. There's no contest. Like, why even bother playing then? It's crazy. And we see later, well, we see in the next book that um, 
everyone, I mean, of course they have firebolts because it's the best broom, but the um, people competing in the World Cup, you know, everyone has the same broom. There's no... Yeah, everyone has firebolts. Right, so there's nothing, there's no reason for this to happen. They should really all just have this basic broom, Yeah, to be honest. They should, the school should just decide, like, okay, like, everyone's going to fly on a clean sweep five. Yeah. And that you will just hand out brooms. Everybody who makes the Quidditch team gets, gets a broom. One. You don't have to like be given a broom by the headmaster in order to play. I mean, that's like, yeah, you get a uniform from a school. Like, it's the same thing. Yeah, it should but be. it's like McGonagall doesn't have to spend her whole salary on buying a Nimbus 2000 no. for her favorite student. <laughs> yeah. Know what I mean? So just, just to like get that out there, that this is a, a broken system. It's very unfair. But so why did J.K. Rowling write it this way? So... Because I have a theory. Okay. I wonder what you think. I don't know. What is your theory? Well, I think that she wanted Harry to be the best player. Mm-hmm. And and the <laughs> the kind of easiest way to do that in a sport where everybody's flying on brooms is just to have him have the best broom. Yeah. Although it would have been more interesting if he were just the best player without it, I think. I think so, too. But, I, you know, that's my theory. And I, it, also, as we've discussed before, she really doesn't like writing Quidditch games. Yeah, that's true. Um, so she's trying to make them interesting. It's harder and harder to make them interesting. Uh, yeah. And, and so I think this this book, the like thing that happens is... The Firebolt. The Firebolt. And also the Dementors. Yeah. But, yeah. I mean, I agree because I think... I think I would find it hard to write Quidditch games, um, and I can see how she's trying to make them interesting and make the Quidditch game events interesting. Yeah. Um, and it clearly works here. I mean, the best part of this chapter is the banter between Lee Jordan and Professor McGonagall when he's just, like, advertising the fireball and right. she keeps yelling at him to, yes. like, actually commentate the match. Yes. I also think that there's something about um, Harry being... Harry's broom, so Harry's broom being shattered in this book, but also, you know, being knocked off his broom by the pleasure last book, like, she she does have want to have some theme of, like, it's it's difficult for him to play Quidditch, and it's dangerous, and um, that he's, go- there's going to have to be new things that come up. Yeah, yeah, it's not fun if there aren't obstacles, right? right. That's, like, you know, triumphing over the obstacle is the, the fun part of writing these Quidditch games. But here it's it's like the actual game is trivial because Harry's broom is so much better than everybody else's. Right. If there weren't other things happening, he would have caught the snitch in like two seconds. Right. And I do think, I, I don't know if I remember this correctly, but it feels like after this match or at least after this book, everyone's kind of over it. Like he doesn't necessarily, he doesn't necessarily have this extreme advantage Always, or at least it's not really talked about. It's not talked about as much. They don't make a bit as big a deal uh, over the firebolt, but it still is the kind of thing where he's like, "This broom feels like an extension of my arm, yeah, my legs." Like very, it turns yeah. without me even thinking about it. It's. I think it's written because, partly because she wanted to make him like really, really good at the game, and partly because she wanted it to to feel more just like um, natural flying. Yeah, yeah, and and so that he can really like achieve his full potential as a flyer, especially like next book when it becomes really important for him to be a good flyer. And it's probably easier to write when it's like, okay, he doesn't really have to think about anything because also Mm -hmm. I don't. (laughs) Yeah. So that I don't also. (laughs) I can just say that he does this. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and when, when you're not constrained by the limits of broom technology in the same way that you would be if he was on like a not as good broom, Mm -hmm. then you can write a lot more creatively about it. Right. So then let's get back to the beginning of the chapter where basically it's all about the conflict between um, Ron and Hermione and Harry kind of in the middle, but also kind of not in the middle 
Mm-hmm. Um, so what are your thoughts on that? So, I mean, this it feels like uh, ironic almost that it happened because it's so it's such the culmination of their conflict of, between Crookshanks and Scabbers and also just between the two of them that's been building through this entire book. Um, it's like, of course, this would happen. And that's why it also... I mean, maybe if you were, although it's difficult to figure out, I feel like if you were thinking hard about it, you would think, okay, this must have been orchestrated somehow because it's exactly what they would expect. Um, And so I think that they are just both pushed completely to their breaking points. I think on Hermione's side here, um, especially because I'm so worried about her at this point in the book, she's just basically beside herself because she knows, she's like, I don't think that Crookshanks would do that. But she also doesn't feel like she has a leg to stand on anymore because of the evidence. And they're just so mad at her in general about the fireball. And she's basically like a zombie and exhausted because of her schedule. Yeah. And she's just so strained. Yeah. That's part of it. Like, at one point, she says, like, first, you know, first uh, the fireball, now Scabbers. Like, everything is just my fault, isn't it? Right. Like, she's just exasperated. She feels like there's nothing she can do at this point. No. Um, And she knows about Lupin and that she's kind of holding that. And, you know, there's just a lot of things that she that she's holding in. Um, and so she's exhausted. Ron is being a typical Ron, I would say, in this. I mean, yes, of course, he genuinely believes. Like, it would suck if you believed that the cat attacked your rat, I guess, your pet. Yeah, it's his pet. It's he's, his pet. He's had it for years and years. And he, obviously cares about it. I mean, even though he complained about Scabbers sometimes. Yeah, he definitely useless, did. He definitely, he definitely cared about him. And and he, I think, he feels really hurt by how little regard Hermione seems to have for it. Right. You know, she hasn't apologized. She hasn't, you know, said anything about the situation, really, except that, like, she's sad for him right. that Scabbers is gone. But as Ron said, like, she's kind of just pretending that Scabbers has gone on vacation or something. Yeah. No, it's true. And I, I can feel for Ron in that way. But I also think that Ron is this is his typical reaction where he just he's very stubborn i mean Mm -hmm. they're both very similar which we've discussed before but they're both very similar in that they're both really really stubborn and can hold a grudge a long time um but i think that ron just gets into this point of anger and then continues to lash out and lash out um in the kind of a passive-aggressive way um and that continues on and on to a point where it really takes a lot. We see this later on, too. It takes a lot for him to come back from if he thinks that he has been wronged, even if it turns out that he is incorrect. He has a hard time admitting that. Yeah, but it's not just Ron. I And I think it's a little bit misleading to say it like that because it's just that they're commu- they're not communicating about their feelings in a, in a healthy and effective no, way. Right. Neither of them are. Hermione, I'm including in this as well, because... She is so emotionally exhausted and exasperated that she can't communicate to Ron that what she's feeling is, I'm really sorry that this happened. Mm -hmm. And who knows how it happened. It certainly does look like it was Crookshanks. I don't think it was Crookshanks, but I'm really sorry. Right. Like, I didn't want this. Yeah. Nobody wanted this. This This is is not my intention. And like, I'm, you know, I feel really badly for you. That's what she should be saying. Right. And on Ron's side, he should be saying, Hermione, I'm really hurt that you haven't apologized because i feel like this was your fault and i need you to make amends and show me that you care about me losing my pet because i know you'd be devastated if you lost your pet right and so neither of them are saying that to each other i mean they're 13 so (laughs) how much are they really aware of these feelings anyway but it, it is this kind of thing where like both of them are 
are yes. dysfunctional right now. They're both, they're there and they're both holding, I mean, Hermione especially, but they're both just holding a lot in that they're not communicating to each other. Um, and they have these other circumstances. I also think that it's, it's especially sad for Ron in my mind, just knowing the whole context that like his pet was always this like horrible person. And, like, was never actually a pet. I mean, that's just, like, of course that would happen. Is And even though it's, like, whatever, it was Scabbers, but it was still, like, he cared about it. And then to, like, find out that, like, this was who he'd been living with. I mean, we'll see when he, what happens when he does find out. But it's just, you know, it's I just feel awful for him more yeah. in that perspective that, like, he never even had what he thought he had. No, it's, it's true. And, yeah, I mean, it must be incredibly confusing when we get to that point for him to, to feel like <laughs> he just had, like, a random, horrible, like, Death Eater living in his bed yeah, for God, that's horrible. a number of years. Um, yeah, it, it must be really confusing with that whole situation. So speaking of Crookshanks' end of this, what is actually going on with Crookshanks? Not just when Harry and Ron see him, although I think we should talk about that. But what's happening with him? What does he know? And what is he actually um, doing to kind of manipulate the situation? Well, he clearly knows immediately, like from the first time that he saw him, that Scabbers is not a rat. Right. So he's been kind of like, I think, investigating that for this whole book. Mm -hmm. And then when he meets with um, Padfoot in dog form... uh, I think they kind of like communicate in a way and Padfoot is able to explain like what he's doing there and why. Mm-hmm. Um, and Crookshanks is able to verify like, yes, there is a like thing pretending to be a rat. He lives with this guy who my mom is friends with. <laughs> um, and, and they can kind of like, uh, you know, Plan be, be co-conspirators. Yeah. So at some point, um, and it might even be the scene where we see Crookshanks, uh, on the way up from the castle where Harry thinks he might have seen the Grimm, um, they're probably conversing. Right. It might have even been the conversation where Crookshank says, like, hey, I stole the passwords for you. You can mm-hmm. use them to get into the tower. Yes. Yeah, so what So what we know later or conclude is that Crookshanks found the lost passwords or stole them from Neville yeah. and brought them to Sirius Padfoot intentionally. Mm-hmm. Um, important to note that... Uh, Crookshanks is part measle, which we yeah we do we know do and discuss, so that that's a, basically a very smart cat-like creature, so that Crookshanks would have more knowledge than a regular cat. Right, exactly. So we know that when Black does break into the dormitory, Scabbers is already gone. Mm-hmm. He, had, he had left, probably presumably like a few days ago. I don't know exactly the timeline. Right, right. Um, so why doesn't Crookshanks communicate that to him? Yeah, I'm not sure. And that's, you know, where this kind of breaks down. We never get a play-by-play of their conversations. But um, either Crookshanks doesn't know, maybe just thinks that Scabbers is hiding or doesn't know the full extent of that whole, like, like bloody sheets cover-up situation. Maybe Crookshanks doesn't really know that. Um, you would think that Crookshanks would be able to, like, not smell scabbers anymore right yeah um so that's like possibly a little bit of a plot hole or just maybe the communication got um you know it was their paths were crossed at a timing that was poor so he sure this gave the passwords to Sirius and before all this happened um yeah i don't know uh, kirk shanks also it's possible although i don't think that 
he would because he seems smart in this, but maybe Crookshanks somehow thinks that Ron is, like, working with Scabbers because they were living together, and maybe Crookshanks thinks that Ron knows something more, um, but that doesn't happen, and, and we'll talk about what people end up thinking happens. So now backing up to the game again, um, this is our first introduction to Cho Chang, very important character in future books. Yeah. Um, and she's pretty cool in this chapter, I think. So she is the um, seeker on the Ravenclaw team mm-hmm. um, for this game. And she is very pretty and charming. And even though she and Harry don't interact very much, Harry is clearly a little bit distracted by her um, and also maybe just wanting to possibly defer to her a little bit um because there's a couple times where he should be just pushing past her or knocking her over right. and he it feels delicate about doing that yeah uh cho's strategy in the game appears to be sort of like mess with harry right prevent harry from getting to the snitch um as much as you can uh and then maybe an opportunity will will break open and it's a good strategy because harry's broom is so good that if she didn't interfere with him at some point he would probably have no trouble catching the snitch. Right. Um, but instead, she kind of just is like constantly blocking him, um, you know, forcing him to change direction, things like that. Um, and it's a good strategy. So I think Harry uh, has a lot of respect for the way that mm-hmm. she flies and, and her ability to play Quidditch She's and her smart. strategy. And, and he um, combines that in his head with how pretty she is. And I think it starts to turn into a bit of a crush, even just like during the game. Might oh, not yeah. be like, might not be... Um, cognizant of that fact but definitely by like next year it'll have developed into a real crush yes definitely so it's it's a good um planting of a seed i think by rowling in this chapter and it it becomes clear that what harry is attracted to is like beauty and like intelligence and talent and quidditch yes those are like three things that it turns out are very very attractive to him yeah because when he falls for Ginny later it's kind of like the same same qualities essentially and then back to um, the Patronus idea. I know we talked a lot last chapter about the Patronus and then the Bogart and uh, possible placebo effects, but I think that in this case, it's not a Bogart. It's just Malfoy and et cetera dra- dressed up as Dementors. So um, Harry ca- does cast a Patronus. Um, yeah, and, and, it was and a real one. A real one, which was definitely easier to do without the effects of a real Dementor there. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm wondering, though, for him, in that moment, like, would he have had some sort of psychological, also placebo effect in the reverse, where if he hadn't, if he hadn't cast a Patronus, would he have felt that some of the similar feelings that a Dementor would give him because he's seeing that and expecting that kind of reaction? Um, and I don't know if we know that or if there's any evidence to that but i just think it's an interesting contrast to the previous chapter and kind of what we're thinking about in terms of harry's uh, psychological effect from this yeah well i I think it's clearly described as being very different than even his interactions with the bogart dementor because uh when he sees them it he didn't he didn't feel anything so usually it's like he feels them first and then he sees them right in this case cho points it out to him he looks he sees them looking like Dementors. He doesn't even think about it. He just casts a Patronus mm-hmm. right away. And then, like, when he lands and he's talking to Lupin about it, he's very excited. He's like, like they didn't, didn't affect, affect me, me at all. Yeah. 
I the Patronus worked a treat, and Lupin's like, oh, actually, it <laughs> they weren't Dementors, yeah. so that's why it worked so well. Um, so I I don't really think that he would have experienced any placebo effect um, based on that. I mean, we don't have we don't have enough evidence to say one way or the other, really, but. It, it it doesn't seem like they affected him in any way. No, I think that's true. And I almost, I mean, you know, it's shitty in, in general that Malfoy did that. But I almost wish that Harry had not known that that was not a real Dementor because it sort of gave him this built up confidence around yeah. like, I can do it and right. I can handle it. And I think that that, I think that that would have generally helped him in future situations do that. Yeah, for sure. I I mean, the problem is it's like uh, Catch-22 because Dementors being there make it so hard to cast a Patronus. Um, But if he had been able to cast a Patronus with Dementors there, that would be great for his confidence. Mm -hmm. And in the future, it would be easier, right? So it's just that that hump. And actually, the end of this book will treat that Catch-22 with a lot of grace Mm -hmm. because the way that he kind of overcomes that huge obstacle to casting a Patronus is the confidence of knowing that he'd already done it. Right, right. So it is like a cool way of, yeah, of overcoming that, really that, cool. that problem. And then I want to move to the end of the chapter when um, Sirius Black invades the Gryffindor boys' dormitory and uh, Ron wakes up with him standing over him holding a knife. Um, I think it's a really powerful moment um, because – you know, it, we don't experience it through Harry's eyes. Well, we do experience it through Harry's eyes, but he doesn't see any of this happen. Right. It's it's Ron's word. And so at first, there's this sense that, you know, like Percy, the reader could believe that maybe Ron was having a really bad dream or he saw something that wasn't there. Mm-hmm. Um, but when it's confirmed for us by Sir Cadogan, it's this like really chilling moment where you realize that nowhere is safe, really, mm-hmm. because, you know... Not only did Black get into the castle, which is, you know, supposed to be impossible, but he also managed to steal the passwords to the Gryffindor common room and get in. Get into basically Harry's bed almost. Yeah. I mean, and that's what people assume is that he missed exactly. the bed. That that he was just looking at the wrong bed. So it's just like pure chance that Harry managed to survive that time, um, at least from, from the perspective of the students. And so you have to feel like almost exactly like last year during the Chamber of Secrets Mm -hmm. episodes, like, is Hogwarts even safe anymore at all? And, like, if Hogwarts isn't safe, where is? I know. I mean, it's it's kind of funny that they continue after, even in later books, to be like, Hogwarts is the safest place because it clearly (laughs) hasn't been, basically, from the beginning. Like, Voldemort's gotten in. Like, all this stuff has happened. So, I don't know. Um, It's pretty funny, but... Yeah, this is definitely pretty terrifying because it's not just, oh, there's a, a, a scary chamber and, like, don't walk around on your own. It's really, it's like... more of a realistic fear. You're in your bed and anyone could get in. And yeah. so they obviously have some more security measures in place after this, like, and Neville is basically not allowed to do anything. Um, but yeah. I think that... It's pretty sad because it wasn't his fault, really. It wasn't. I mean, writing down the passwords might have been dumb, but he didn't, like carelessly leave them around they were just stolen right but none of this yeah so there's so many things that are pointing to the assumptions that we have to make the first time that it's um a lot of people are getting a lot of people are getting blamed and animals are getting blamed (laughs) for things that um they didn't necessarily do so right um that's happening but it is pretty terrifying and just adds to the increasing level of stress and anxiety around safety 
Yeah, and I think it just makes this real for everyone in a way that it might not have been before. Like, yeah, it's not oh, just Sirius Black is after Harry. Mm-hmm. That's scary. But then, like, oh, he actually like made it all the way up to their dormitory. Right. That's terrifying. It is like, terrifying. what if he decides to kill me next? I don't right. like. He could he could have attacked anybody. Right. Thank you all for listening to Harry Podcast and Gryffindor vs. Ravenclaw. We hope you've enjoyed our discussion of this chapter. If you have thoughts or questions about anything we've discussed today, please email us at contact at theharrypodcast.com. You can find out more about the show and listen to any of our episodes at theharrypodcast.com or on Apple Podcasts. Stay tuned for next time when we trudge through Chapter 14, Snape's Grudge. <laughs> Isn't that great? Yeah. <laughs> I'm Madeline. And I'm David, and we'll see you next time on the Harry Podcast. Knox.